Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. This episode today is a conversation that I had with my old friend, Curtis Jones. Curtis is in the upper echelons in terms of the ability to play a guitar. He is one of the finest guitar players that I've ever run across. And I first met him when he was just a, he's a teenager hanging around the, you know, off the corners of the stage when we were playing back in the eighties. And I've known him for many, many years. I also did some work with him, uh, both playing, um, some shows with him and also um, filming and editing a couple of uh, instructional videos that he put out. So I've, I've known him for a very long time, kind of lost track of him over the last couple of years. But as you will learn in this conversation, once you got a bluegrass friend, you know, you're always friends. I could not see him for 10 years and bump into him and we just pick right back up where we left off. Curtis is, a, is an interesting guy, has a lot of uh, things that I think you could learn something from, and I hope you will enjoy this as much as I did. So let's get into this. First, we'll hear a little bit of Curtis's playing, uh, just as a little segue music into our conversation. Then I'll talk to you at the other end of this. Curtis Jones. He's sitting up there in Blairsville, Georgia, and I'm down here in America, so we're doing this over the phone. And I haven't talked to Curtis in a while, so Curtis, you're going to have to bring me up to date on what you've been up to, which we'll get to in a minute, but I want to begin by just allowing you a minute to introduce yourself to the Grass Talk Radio audience and, you know, maybe tell people where you were born and when, you know, that kind of stuff. All right. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much, Brad, for having me on the show. And it's uh, it's so good to, to hear your voice again. We haven't talked in years and years and haven't seen each other in years. Yeah, it's been at least four it's or a, five. Yeah, yeah, real good to catch up and real good to talk to you again and glad to know you're doing well. And, and uh, thank you again for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Happy to so, have uh, you. So oh, where, you. where were you born? Where were you born so and when? I was born in Dallas, Georgia, 1967, uh, and uh, grew up around the Dallas area, and then uh, went to school, uh, high school at least, over in Pebble Brook, and uh, we moved over to the Mableton area, Mableton, Georgia, and uh, grew up around that. Really, uh, all of my teenage years was spent in Mableton and uh, Cobb County. And then then after that, uh, we moved up to Dallas, Georgia. Uh, moved back there. Of course, that's where I was born. Uh, and then lived there until I got out of high school. And then I moved to Dahlonega, uh, Georgia. And in between all of that, of course, uh, you know, to, to make a long story short, I did live in Nashville for a year, uh, playing, doing a lot of session work and, and uh, playing with a couple of different bands. And then I did live in Roanoke, Virginia for a year as well. Yeah, now back, let's go back to Dallas. I'm sure you hung out at Raccoon mm-hmm. Creek a good bit. All the time. In fact, that was the first bluegrass festival I ever went to. It's a good one. The old Rake It is. Yep. Yep. Been to it many a time. And I, I'm sure, I'm, I'm absolutely positive that we've run into each other there. You may have just been a kid back in those days. Um, yeah, I was. I started going, I think, when I was around. Uh, I started just before guitar, so it would have been 15 or 16 yeah. is when I went to my first festival there. Yeah, that's when I started seeing you around. We'd be playing different places with Cedar mm-hmm. Hill. And, you know, I remember bumping into you a few times. Uh, yeah, uh, Like absolutely. places like you'd show up at the freight room and places like that. Yeah, and I'll say uh, you and Cedar Hill, all those guys, you always blew my mind. You're a great inspiration for me. <laughs> well, we had some good, we had some good jokes. I, you know, I, I don't know. It was, it was, uh, 
those were good days. And, and oh, absolutely. A lot of a lot of good pickers in the Atlanta area, and I'm trying to highlight those people a little bit more because I think a lot of the attention is drawn away to places like Nashville and Virginia and North Carolina and stuff, and there are a ton of good pickers who came out from around the Atlanta area, and you're one of them. Well, I appreciate that, and yeah, no doubt there's so many great musicians in, in Georgia. It's, it's incredible. Now, did you hang out up at Swanee very much? Uh, I did. Uh, I didn't go there near as much as I went like to the freight room and, and to the local festivals and stuff like that, and a lot of jam sessions locally. Uh, but I went uh, maybe, I would say probably you know once or twice a year I would go. Yeah, yeah, because that that place has certainly cranked out some really fine pickers up there, too. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Well, you're known primarily as a guitar player, and mm -hmm. but when you were starting out, was that your first instrument, or did you dabble in other things? Um, of course, no, I know uh, you actually, play a lot of things. I know you play a lot of things. I've heard, I've heard recordings of you. I think playing a trombone or something. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. I started uh, when I was eleven. My dad started me on fiddle and banjo. That's a good place and, uh, to start. <laughs> that's a good place to start, and and I really enjoyed the banjo because the banjo helped me really, I think, develop speed as a flat picking guitarist later on. I really think just the idea of, uh, you know, with a banjo, you, of course, have to play double and triple time. Uh, so so uh, it really is a fast instrument. So it helped me kind of get a grasp on how to play fast. Right. Uh, and, and the banjo really helped me with that a lot. Now, you... now, the fiddle, of course, it really taught me to use my ear and, and think about playing in tune. Because we all know anybody that's ever touched a fiddle playing in tune is uh is about 90 percent of it other than the bow action that's right so uh so it really trained my ears to hear hear tone and and uh playing in tune so i really am kind of glad i started with fiddle and banjo it really helped me kind of develop those skills um and then and then that's all i played up until i was 15 or 16 i started on guitar and just got completely obsessed with it yeah let me ask you something you said your dad got you started on banjo and fiddle mm -hmm. uh did he play and what is the background of your family as far as music and how far does it go back and that kind of thing so there's no musical history at all on my mom's side. Nobody played or sang or did anything really uh, musically. Mm -hmm. On my dad's side, all of his brothers kind of dabbled with guitar a little bit, and they all were good singers, uh, you know. But my dad was an exceptional singer. He uh, he loved Hank Williams, and he could sing and sound just like Hank Williams, uh, singer. Right. And, uh, so he was really good at that, and he was self-taught. He taught himself to play guitar, banjo, and fiddle, and uh, and was and was quite good at all three. He's a great rhythm guitar player. You know, he uh, he loved Flat and Scruggs and loved the Stanley Brothers. So he kind of taught himself all of those songs, and uh, and just growing up around there, I remember, uh, you know, just when I was eight or nine, I would remember hearing him set at the table and sing Hank Williams and Flatt and Scruggs and uh, Stanley Brothers. I'm just amazed at how, how good it sounded for one person, not a full band. Right, right. So he was he was quite talented. Yeah, I bumped into him a couple of times over the years, and uh, mm -hmm. I had forgotten what his name was, and I didn't realize he also was Curtis Jones. So you're, Absolutely. Are yep. you Curtis, Curtis Jones Sr. So you're Curtis Jones the second or junior, right? Junior. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's a that's a nice gift to give to a kid to to introduce him to music and and he probably took you around places when before you could drive and things like that. And uh, yep. that's something to be very thankful for. Well, as you got into you, you definitely sort of settled on guitar. Um, mm -hmm. as you did that, what 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 was your reasoning like who were your influences and what made you really want to dig into the guitar so seriously? Well, that's a great question. And basically what happened is, is when I was in middle school, the last year of middle school, they wanted me in chorus. So uh, I went in chorus and started singing. So the band director asked me if I could play any wind instruments. And I said, well, not really. I've never tried. So he said, well, let's get you started on the trumpet. You know, let's start with the trumpet. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so he kind of got me going on the trumpet a little bit and I I started playing trumpet, uh, you know, and then, uh, singing in chorus. So then when I went into high school, you know, I kept playing the trumpet, you know, I kept my trumpet and played it and really, really loved Miles Davis. I remember, you know, back then my dad buying me a Miles Davis record and I really loved Miles playing. So that kind of kept me going on, on the inspiration of trumpet. Right. Right. Uh, but then what happened is we had a friend, and I know you know Steve Sosby. Right. Yep. So Steve Sosby kind of befriended me and my friend Stephen Cagle, and we were just kind of starting out on guitar and mandolin. I didn't even flat pick at the time. I was just kind of dabbling with chords. And Steve was kind enough to ask our parents if he could take us to Raccoon Creek Bluegrass Festival. So, uh, so we did, and we went to the festival with Steve and heard all this jamming and heard live music and, and, uh, and was just blown away. I mean, just completely infected with it. So I really was uh, into the guitar at that time. So I walked up to the record table, and Carl Queen, do you remember him? Right, I do. Okay, yeah, Carl Queen was there and had his record table set up. And I asked him, I said, uh, you know, I, I want to be a guitar player, but I have no idea where to start. And he reached and handed me a Ricky Skaggs and Tony Ross, the duet CD yep. or the duet record. I'm sorry. It was vinyl. Uh, Curtis, I'm and not he, kidding you. I'm not kidding you. That is on my turntable right behind my chair right now. <laughs> that record. Well, it stays on mine because that is, uh, that's the gold seal of brother, brother music, oh, you know, man. brother duet type style music. It's the greatest. It, it is the greatest ever in my, in my book. Uh, but Carl gave me that record and he said, take this home and listen to it. He said, there's not a lot of flat picking on it, but listen close to the rhythm playing and the way Tony plays rhythm. Yeah. So I did, I took that record home and I just dissected it. I mean, I played with it, you know, for probably four or five hours a day for a while. That record, just, uh, let me interject here, is so okay. good in many ways because a banjo player can use it to learn when to not play. A bass right. player can use it because there's no bass on it. It is mm -hmm. a school in lead and tenor singing mm -hmm. and it it is also a massive collection of the best mandolin turnarounds that anybody ever came up with you know you just absolutely put all that stuff together it is an amazing record yeah and then tony's guitar tone on it too and oh. his uh his sense of feel you know when back and skags up or when they're singing yeah his dynamic range on that record of how he got real soft with that flat picking and then he would hit him in between the spots where they weren't uh, singing is just yeah, it's a school. I mean, you can, you can completely learn music by listening to that record. Yeah. I, I agree with that. So obviously you became a, a big rice fan. How, how long until you saw Tony rice perform? Okay. Yeah. So that's another great question. So, yeah. So I kind of got obsessed with Tony. I, I remember, and this is kind of funny, not that I promote skipping school or anything like that, but, uh, oh, I, do. but I did one day, <laughs> one day I saved a bunch of money and, uh, where we lived at the time I was going to Pebble Brook and, uh, we lived over there. And, uh, so I saved up money and there was a turtles record store. If anybody remembers. Oh, that. Yeah. And you collected the turtles stamps. Absolutely. And, and a little yeah. book uh, and you could get a free record. A, a Turtles record store, and I had got news that one of the Bluegrass album bands had just come out. I think it was the first one. Um, and, you know, I was ob completely obsessed with Tony at this time, so I had to have that record. So one morning I woke up, and I always walked to school because we live real close. Yeah. I walked out in the woods, waited for Mom and Dad to leave to go to work, <laughs> ran in and got my bicycle, and uh, took off. So I skipped school. I went to Turtles and bought that record. Um, and then, of course, I kind of killed time the rest of the day till everybody got home. And then I was able to go play it. And, uh, and fortunately, Mom and Dad never asked me where I got it. You know, I guess they assumed I already had it. Yeah, yeah that's funny. <laughs> but uh, so that uh, Bluegrass Album Band Volume 1, I dissected it. So anyway... Um, I just got real into Tony and, uh, you know, up and through, up and through high school. 
uh, I guess it was probably just after high school, either that or maybe I was still there. Oh, you know what? I was still there because I was still in high school when I played with Larry Rice, Tony Rice's brother. Oh. So I would have still been in high school, probably I would say a junior or a senior. And uh, I got word that Tony was playing at uh, center stage. Uh, no, actually, it was the moon shadow yep. down in Atlanta. It was. And so uh, so I had got to be, be friends with Jeff Mosier at the time. So yep. Jeff, I'm pretty sure, booked that gig. He was booking that gig at that time. And he booked Tony to come and play there with the unit. So he actually got me backstage to meet Tony after the show. And, uh, of course, the show, I was completely blown away like a zombie. I mean, it was just like nothing I had ever heard before. Now, do you, do you remember what year that was? Because I just distinctly remember Cedar Hill opening for the Tony Rice unit at the Moonshadow. I'm going to guess 85 or 86, maybe. Yeah, it would have been around that time. It would have been 85 or 86, somewhere in there. Yeah, I've got the flyer from that thing still. <laughs> oh, man, that's so cool. I'd love to get a copy of that. That would be you really neat to hang in the studio. Yeah, I think, and and I think uh, Sharon Wiggins was booking some of that stuff there. Okay, too. yeah, Sharon did a lot of that. Yeah, she was. Her, uh, both uh, Mosier and her were kind. Of, I think working on that stuff together. Maybe, maybe at the right. time. Exactly. <clears throat> so, so I got to meet Tony the first time I saw him play, and uh, he was such a nice, humble human being. So I was real nervous, you know, because I had heard that a lot of people meet their idols and their, their heroes and, and they're real jerks, you know, but I went back there and Tony was so nice to me. So he goes, uh, I'll never forget it. He goes, uh, son, have you ever played that guitar? And there was the antique, you know, the right. famous Clarence white Tony Rice guitar. And I said, no, sir, I've never, never played that one. And he said, well, pick it up and, and let me hear what you got. So I, I just about fainted. I remember my knees were shaking, and I was so scared to touch that guitar. <laughs> yeah. But I picked it up, and I played it, and um, and he had some real nice things to say. He said, where'd you learn to do that? Uh, and I said, just listening to you, really. And he said, well, that's that's pretty impressive, you know. So I played the guitar, you know, a few, few things, and uh, set it down and shook his hand. And left there, you know, really feeling good about myself and music. You know, it just when you meet your hero like that, and he's that nice to you. It, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I think that brings up a point about bluegrass music in particular is that and there are other there are a couple of other styles that this is true for, too. But it's definitely true in bluegrass. It is the one of the main forms of music where you can meet your hero. Cause like if you had gotten into Van Halen or something, the odds of you doing that, having that same experience with Eddie Van Halen would have been very, very slim. Oh, very slim. Yes, absolutely. I think jazz, you know, basically the smaller the audience, the greater the likelihood. I mean, all the people that I have met over the years, Sometimes because we're booked at the same festivals and sometimes just because I went and I stood around at the back when they come down the stairs and, you know, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of people I've met that way. Yeah, it's really a nice community, uh, you know, of people and and it is uh, it is a lot easier to meet your heroes, you know, and the guys that you never thought you would meet. All of a sudden you're standing in a room with him, you know, there right. he is and. And it made, uh, I always appreciate it. Of course, I got to know Tony and, and uh, you know, and especially his brother Larry later on. And then just always, uh, I will always keep a soft spot in my heart for Tony for being that nice to me. Because uh, that, that made a big difference, I think, in the direction I went musically. Right. Now, of course, Tony kind of shifted gears out of the bluegrass realm when he got hooked mm -hmm. up with Grisman and the whole dog music thing came and then the space grass thing. So did you sort of, cause I think your playing sort of took a turn too. What was it influenced by that? Because he was definitely getting into exploring 
of you know jazz and things like that did how did, uh, yeah. how did that time period affect you i mean i know set aside the bluegrass album band stuff because tony could just he could play jazz on monday and bluegrass on tuesday no problem oh yeah you know? no problem at all no yeah. problem at all but how did that In whole fact, dog uh, thing affect you you know yeah so it, it did uh, at the time you know when the dog music stuff came out it was a little over my head as far as understanding. And yeah, it, me it's too. still very deep music. <laughs> totally. You know, so it really didn't. I love Tony's playing, you know, always loved his tone, his phrasing. I mean, it just the skill level was unbelievable. But I always preferred at that time, I preferred his singing. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and the stuff that he was singing, like Manzanita and Cold on the Shoulder, those records had huge impacts on me yeah. at the time. And I never really attached to the jazz stuff until later on in years um, where I was in Germany uh, touring with Jim Hurst, Missy Raines, John Moore, and myself. And we were touring in Germany. Yeah. And uh, and Jim Hurst goes, Curtis, I'm going to blow your mind on something here. Because, you know, I was talking about flat pickers and how fast they are and how clean they are. He goes, I'm going to blow your mind here. We were in a little record store in Germany. Let me guess. I'm I'm going to be psychic here. Aldi okay. Viola. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. All right, continue, because I've, I have heard you mention this before. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So we walk over to a, to a shelf, and he pulls out <laughs> Friday night in San Francisco with Aldi Viola, Paco de Lucia, and John McLaughlin. Yeah. And he handed me that CD and said, if you've ever trusted me, buy that CD. He's so, trying, you know, I was, I was just pretty much straight into bluegrass. He's trying to ruin you, man. He almost ruined you. <laughs> yeah, so he said, if you've ever trusted me, buy that record. So I did. I bought it, and I had no idea what it was. And I, I put that on when we got in the car and put on my headphones, and I sat there like a zombie. I was, <laughs> In fact, he was laughing the whole time we were driving because I was just like a zombie. I had never heard anything like that in my life. And uh, it just the speed and the clarity of those acoustic guitars yeah. was yeah. like nothing I had ever heard. But what I did hear in it is I did hear some stuff that reminded me of Tony especially the stuff Al Demiola was playing. Uh, I did hear stuff that just uh, was like, man, I've kind of, it's kind of similar to some licks I've heard Tony do. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I started kind of piecing it all together. And then I realized that, uh, you know, of course, Django Reinhardt was a great influence on Tony. Um, and Django Reinhardt is also a huge influence on Al Demiola and John McLaughlin and Paco de Lucia. So and, it, it and, kind of... And you'd have to throw Grisman in there for certain. Uh, oh, for certain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Grisman, I know he loves Django yeah, for sure. Yeah, ate it up. Ate it up. Yeah. The hot and, and club so I started kind of realizing that this, all of these early guys, Eddie Lang and uh, Django Reinhardt, Wes Montgomery... And, uh, you know, all of these early jazz guys were huge, huge influences on all of the players that I was listening to who were huge influences on me, Yeah. such yeah. as Mark O'Connor. I read once where an article, Mark O'Connor said that Al Demiola was one of his favorite guitarists of all time as well. Yeah. So yeah. I had, you know, heard uh, uh, Mark do stuff on Marco, Markology. That was very similar to what the stuff I heard Al Demiola doing as well. Yeah. And there's yeah. where the link was. It was those guys were influenced by Al Demiola. Al was influenced by Django, of course, and all these great jazz guitar players. So it kind of all started making sense to me that maybe I should keep my ear open and, and try to get into some of this stuff that, you know, Tony was into. I know Tony was a huge John Coltrane fan. So I went out and bought some John Coltrane records. And again, it made me a zombie. I could not believe the level that a saxophone could be played at, you know. And it just kind of all started snowballing into this, uh, this uh, inspiration for me to try to take the guitar, what I was doing, 
and try to add little pieces of all of these players and come up with something original myself that I was doing. Well, uh, talk a little bit about how that progressed. Uh, when, <clears throat> I guess, when did you first start trying to express like your own amalgamation of those things? You know, was it in the formation of your own band or was it while you're playing with somebody else or, cause you've been doing this for a very long time. Almost, right. almost as long as me, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I basically just kept doing the same stuff, you know, uh, you know, the Cedar Hill thing and the Pony Express yeah. thing. I just did the same stuff. I tried to improve on my jokes and cowboy poetry <laughs> and, you know, come up with better gags and things like that. But I didn't really, I don't think I had the, the true talent, uh, that a guy like you did. And so what, how did you then... And I'm, I'm sure you're still continuing this to to this day. But when was the first time you really like tried to put your own thing together, your own band or your own whatever? Well, it, it was coming back from that trip, that same exact trip. So another thing, real quick, I'll say here that that on that same exact trip, what really uh, just affected me so much was we went to Spain on that same trip. And uh, me and the banjo player, Dennis Kaplinger, who just passed away not long ago, um, me and him went out to a, a pub one night to hear live music. Well, it happened to be authentic, true flamenco music. Oh. And, and I remember me and Dennis sitting there looking at each other like we're in another world. I mean, this isn't even, this isn't even Earth. This has got to be Mars or something else. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, the music was just phenomenal. And it was just people jamming, basically. And, uh, and a lot of them were little kids that could barely reach around the guitars. And they were just absolutely just annihilating those guitars. So when I heard true flamenco music, and, and I heard, of course, Friday Night in San Francisco on that same trip, it really, what it did is it just pounded me. Like if I have a closed mind, I'm never going to be the guitarist I want to be. So I have to open my mind to music I don't understand or art I don't understand. I have to open my mind and really embrace what this art form is. So on that trip, when I got back from that trip, I started hanging out with a couple of guys and we started doing like, you know, learning some little jazz things and play it on acoustic instruments. Yeah. Uh, so it was very similar to dog music. Um, although we weren't doing great Grisman tunes, we were doing more like straight ahead traditional jazz tunes. Um, but it was very similar to dog music. Um, so that's when I really started making the turn. And then so I went out and I just, uh, I went from having two, three hundred bluegrass records to 5,000 records of every genre you can imagine. <laughs> you know, I listened to the Carpenters. I listened to the Merle Haggard. I listened to Al Demiola. I listened to Sun Ra. I listened to John Coltrane. You know, everything I could get a hold of uh, that I would get and, and just really dissect it and listen to what they were doing with phrasing and what they were doing with their instruments. And, you know, all of these people that I just mentioned and, and many, many more are innovators. You know, they all innovated their their style. They all brought something completely different to what they do. Yeah. And it just really helped me find my path. You know, it helped me get on the path to, to innovating my music, my guitar music, especially guitar. And uh, it really helped me innovate what I was doing and led me exactly to where I am now, which is a place I'm very happy being. You know, there's not a lot of people who can who can say what you just said. That, that's that's good. Although I know you're not at at, at the final uh, destination. I, I'm always um, curious when I when somebody mentions you or I you know, go look at your website or something. There's always something new going on. I remember my, oh, yeah. my wife hired, hired you one time to do a little gig in Atlanta. I don't remember what it was or uh, she was looking for a band. I said, uh, I don't really have a band right now, honey. Why don't, just call Curtis. And you came <laughs> down there and I, 
I popped into that gig and watched you guys play. And I'm like, I've heard Curtis do a lot of things, but I've never heard him do this. It's, it's mm-hmm. always something new. And um, although I think you can innovate yourself out of an audience if you're not careful, because, you know, there's like, like your bluegrass people, they just want to hear the bluegrass, you know, and your jazz people, they just want to hear the jazz, they, you know. And so you can be so diverse sometimes that you fracture your audience into these little microscopic atomized droplets that are kind of hard to get together to support you. You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly. That's the danger of all creative people, though. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you were an artist and everybody admired the way you sculpted marble or something then you decided to start throwing paint at the wall because that's your new thing you know you could <laughs> you could you could turn off your fan base is what i'm saying you know mm-hmm. the next cd might not sell as well anyway um let's uh, shift gears just slightly here okay. um and this is fascinating stuff here um you know, a lot of this stuff I knew just from our little conversations when we would bump into each other and stuff or, mm-hmm. you know, but there's a lot of things I don't know about you. And like, I, I didn't know about that Jim Hurst thing and you playing with Larry Rice and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's back up. There is a, <clears throat> it's not everybody who can pick up a guitar and take it to even close to the level where you are. What do you think allowed you to do that? Like, I mean, I'm almost asking this for the benefit of the beginner, the person that just picks up the instrument. What advice do you give to somebody from the the technical aspect of, and and I know it's a combination of physical practice, and I know it's supremely about being able to listen and, mm-hmm. and not only to what you're doing, but what it is you're trying to do. You know, it's like being able to put a picture in your own mind of your goal. You know, like, what, right. what in the world am I trying to do here? I'm, I'm just curious, kind of like, how did you go from being that kid that could play three chords on a guitar to a, you know, competent, confident player of the guitar? What was going on there? Lessons okay. or practice routines or what? Or is it just a miracle like Mozart, you know? I mean, were you, do you feel well, like you're well, just I've... born with a gift or do you feel like certain things helped you get there? Well, I always say and, and give a hundred percent of the credit to God, you know, uh, thank you uh, for because saying that. It, Oh, Oh, absolutely. It's God given talent. And, and I know he gave that to me, uh, because I've never like, as far as speed goes, I've never really had to work at speed a lot. I'm so I've jealous never, of you. Oh, well, you, well, it's 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 God given, oh, and I man. thank Him every day for it, and I know where it came from, no doubt about it, in my mind. So, um, so because I cannot do that, I've always struggled with speed. I mean, there were t- back in the '80s, I could go pretty fast, I could you know keep up, but I've always struggled with speed, and I just think maybe I just wasn't built for speed, you know. And apparently, you were so. Well, well, dude, there's another thing that uh, when I was uh, four years old, I started taking uh, karate. And uh-huh. then I have to say martial arts was a great tool for me in music. And I'll tell you how this worked is uh, when I took karate, you know, it taught me confidence. And it really taught me a level of confidence and being confident with yourself and not putting yourself down. You know, it really helps with that a lot. So it wasn't about wanting to know how to fight and beat people up. For me, it was about the mind and the spirit. And, and you know, the spirituality of martial arts is is really what what I was into. So I switched over around seven. I switched to Kung Fu. And that was a whole different level of spirituality in the mind. And I remember my teacher plainly teaching me, don't ever be egoed, don't ever have an ego, but don't ever tell you yourself you're not good enough to do something. He said, because it's not ego to stand up there and give it your all and say, you know what, I can do this. So it really, really just drove that home to me. And so when I started guitar, or any musical instrument for that matter, 
I had it in my head that, you know, I can do this. Now, you don't know the students, or you probably do because you teach too. Right. Uh, I have student after student coming to me, and the first thing they say is I'll say, uh, play me something that you like. So they'll play me, you know, Eddie Van Halen or Tony Rice or, or whoever, and they'll say that. And I'll say, okay, so let's get on the path to getting you to that level. And the first thing they say is, I will never be at that level. And they're right. So, so <laughs> but you know, the minute you say that, right. you build the wall. Yep, they've doomed so, themselves. So the wall goes up. And there it is, you know, so confidence and all of that stuff gets put behind that wall. Yeah, I did a whole so, podcast on that very subject, and I've talked about uh-huh. it in my books and videos numerous times, that if I could sell belief in oneself, I'd be a millionaire. Because Absolutely. that is yeah. the thing <laughs> that people are missing. I've had, you know, so many students come along, and I can see perfectly well that they're absolutely capable of being a good competent player but they Mm -hmm. don't they don't think so and it's hopeless with people like that and then you have other people that i'm looking at and i'm thinking i don't know if this guy's you know really got it but he believes he can and he does and now you know i know you need to kind of have both to truly reach the upper echelons of music performance you got to mm-hmm. have the gift and the belief but you, you just i don't know what's uh what's wrong with some people you know <laughs> like yeah. they just absolutely like the the student who will come to you and, and you say well what do you want to do with that thing and they say well I, you know i just like to be able to pick along play along wow. at a jam i'm like well you can already do that goodbye you know yeah. <laughs> you know but the, you get very few people who come along and say well look Here's what I want to do, you know, and and, yeah. they, and they know they can. They, they feel like, see, I felt like I, I was delusional like that when I started. I thought the only thing different between me and Sam Bush is he knows what notes to play and has practiced them. And so I'm thinking, well, if I could just figure out what those notes are and then I practice them, I could do what he's doing. And, you know, yeah. it's kind of self-delusion in a way because it doesn't mean I was – in any way as gifted as he was, but it, so long as you think you are, it really, man, you you go leapfrogging ahead of other people if you believe in yourself. It's amazing. It is, yeah. Confidence is so important. And again, not having ego, because there is a big difference between ego and confidence. Uh, so, so the key is, is keep the ego completely out of it and be humble, Know where your gift come from and and just be confident enough to, to try to do what you want to do and yeah. to just know that with a little hard work, uh, you can get there. You know, you can get to your your goals that you want to get to uh, and don't set anything unreasonable. Don't say, well, I'm going to know how to play Salt Creek note for note. Tony Rice, you're a beginner. I'm going to know it in two days because, right. you know, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but it can happen in a few weeks. You know, if you really put the time to study it, if you really put the time to work on the techniques, the technical ends, and if you practice in your mind, that's a big, big, important ah, so thing. So true. So true. Yeah. Talk, so, talk you, you know, uh, you know, too, being a musician for so long that your mind is a lot of it. I mean, how many times have you showed up at a gig and socked yourself out of playing something good? Uh, that, you know, it's that happened, has to happened everybody has happened. Yes. Certainly. I know so many players that can play a lick, a very difficult lick here in front of me all day long. The second they get on stage before that gig, you can see their brain going, <laughs> I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> and you know what happens? They mess it up. Yep. So you really have to keep your your mind focused uh, and practice, you know, your confidence with your mind as well, because if you don't, you know, your mind will get in the way and block you and you'll get that little thing. I know I'm going to mess this up. Well, the second you say that you've messed it up. Right. You know, because uh, it builds it. What you're talking about is uh, is one of those 
little small gifts that I think I was given was the the ability to be able to visualize a thing without actually doing it physically. Like things such as I'm going to build a chicken coop and for two days I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm picturing it. I'm, I'm making parts lists and, and like mental drawings of how I'm laying in bed, you know, building a doghouse in my mind, you know. And then mm-hmm. when I get up to do it, I just do what I already had. I've already practiced it in my mind. And I have always told my students that, you know, when you're practicing, you say you practice for 20 minutes or something, then you stop. Your subconscious keeps on working. You know, mm-hmm. it really, right. really does. And if you feed it every now and then, just feed it and let the subconscious do the majority of the work. It's when mm-hmm. when we get in the way of our subconscious was when we fail. Exactly. Yeah, there are several licks I do. Some of them are John Coltrane saxophone licks that if I think about them, I cannot play them up to a high speed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you just can't do it. I mean, if you involve the mind, it's over. Yeah, that's you know, like. But I can sit there without thinking about it and play them all day long. Right. That I, I've told this story a couple times on a podcast of me with bowling. You know, one night I was on this bowling league and I decided I couldn't. I started thinking about do I start on my left foot or my right foot? And I started <laughs> rolling them in the gutter one after another. And I was, it was just a mess. So, yeah, you, you, your thinking can definitely get in the way, but a little thinking is good too to help you understand what it is you're trying to do that's right yeah you have to think about it when you're learning it i think uh miles davis once said you know the best thing you can do is learn music in your mind and then forget it yeah you know and and what he meant by that is to really focus on it learn it uh you know learn all of your licks your scales or whatever you're learning or or solos and then once you learn it and get it trained to muscle memory, then the best thing you can do is just kind of let it go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, stop thinking about it and let your hands go where they want to go. Yeah. It, on the other side of the coin, and I always like to take both sides, mm-hmm. is that there are a lot of people who do need to spend a little time thinking about what they're doing, especially oh, on yeah. the lower levels of the of skill and experience. There are some people that do need to hit the books a little and and spend a little time maybe with a metronome or, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And actually try. Um, and once you achieve a certain like when my my break point is once you get to the gig, uh, throw the book away and just play, you know, exactly. Listen, yeah. do the best you can. Maybe they went to you went to B minor and they hit F sharp minor. You know, it's probably good. Or E minor, and it's probably going to work. You know, you probably right. okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. You just, just yeah. I mean, uh, Miles Davis also said, you know, the best music ever was a mistake. You know, I mean, it came from a mistake. And then I myself know I have made a lot of mistakes on stage, and and it turned into one of the coolest licks I've ever done. Yeah, you know, so yeah. I just keep I keep it in my lick repertoire. You know, I keep doing it. There was uh, I told this too on I don't know. I've done 200-something episodes, so I've forgotten what all I've told. But we were sitting there at a Cedar Hill rehearsal one time, and I think it was when David Ellis had joined the band, and we're playing some song, just running through it for him, just, you know, so he can get, you know, up speed on it. And all of a sudden, I look at Bob McIsaac's hand. He's playing one chord, and I'm playing another chord. I'm like, what the, hey, we've been doing this for 20 years, but it just sounded so good what we were doing. I think uh-huh. I was playing a B minor. He was doing G, G major seven. I think we were playing Misty or something. Mm-hmm. And then I, I turned to Fred and I said, what are you playing there? He's like, well, I'm playing this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but we've been doing it for 20 years and it just sounded really good. So I basically yeah. just told David, you know, just play whatever you feel like, whatever you think sounds good. I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> you know. Hey, speaking of um, what we've been talking about, a lot of things, but let's talk about some of the highlights that you've had throughout your career or mm-hmm. life. I'd rather call it a life than a career because um, careers start and stop, but life, you know, is a longer extended thing and it's far more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you and I have played on stage together a few times. We've done a few little gigs here and there. I remember doing a, a 
couple things with Mosier and uh, David Blackman uh-huh. and you and me. And uh, it was always just super fun. But, you know, speaking of making mistakes, I think we were doing this thing one time and I was just more or less winging it on the base. And uh, you launched into like a Gordon Lightfoot thing or something. And I, I totally didn't know it. I just faked my way through the thing. and Yeah, just use your ears and then uh, go with what sounds right. But I, I felt like I just wrecked it. And I remember coming off uh, when we were done. You are like, man, you play really good. I'm like, thanks. I, apparently you weren't listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's, anyway. uh, the cool thing about music is there's so many, so much relative in music that oftentimes if you hit the wrong note, it's going to be a harmony note or it's going to be uh, somewhere in the, the realm of that music. It's going to fit. It will. And a lot of times yeah. it just sounds even better than if you hit the right root note, you know? Yeah. And there are notes in between the notes, but love. So mm-hmm. my, so my question for you is what are some of the high points? Like I'm talking on stage. Like I remember coming up backstage one time, I hadn't seen you in about six or seven years. And we were playing this festival, I think down in Macon and uh, I'm watching this band that's on stage from behind, you know, from the backstage. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that looks like Curtis. Like elbow and Bob like, is that Curtis up there? Yeah, he's he's wearing a suit. He's like, <laughs> he's up there. I think you're playing with the Shankman twins. Yeah, Shankman twins. Yeah. And it was it was in Macon and you know, I hit you up as you came down the stairs, like, Curtis, what you been doing, man? And uh you know, you've performed with a lot of people. What what are those what can you name a couple of performances that just really, really moved you? Like, like you're lucky to have been alive to do that performance. Like performance right. highlights hit me. Yeah, there's there's several um, several of those uh, with the Shankman twins. I mean, we had we had a really tight band. We were together for a long time. And uh, we really were rehearsed well, but but still had a huge improvisation. So everybody kind of took each solo that night and took it where they wanted to take it. Everybody listened to each other real well in that group. And, and we played some really cool venues, a lot of great festivals. The first time we played uh, uh, Winterhawk, it was Winterhawk at the time. It's Gray Fox now. Uh, but at the Winterhawk Festival, I had always heard about these great jams there and these great uh, performances there. You know, and I know Tony was a big part of Winterhawk. You know, I, I had uh, heard some live bootleg tapes of Tony live at Winterhawk that were just unbelievable. So the first time I got to play that with the Shankman Twins, that was a that was a big moment. Because, you know, you walk out on the stage, the sound is pristine, and there's a lot of people. I mean, it is a lot of people, more than bluegrass players are used to seeing. Right. You know, because you're used to playing maybe a 50 to uh, 100-person club or venue. Yeah. Or even at some of the the other festivals, you know, you might have, you know, 100 people out there at a time listening. Yeah. But this was much different. I mean, the sound was really loud. It was, uh, you know, I remember every G run I hit, it pierced my ears. You know, it was like, man, it's so powerful. And uh, and the people were going crazy. And so that one sticks out, uh, you know, as a big one for me because it made me feel like, uh, well, you know, Tony's my hero in bluegrass and all these guys, Sam Bush. And and this is kind of what they must feel when they play Winterhawk, you know. So right, right. So in that regard, that was a real big one for me. Well, I heard and, you play with them, and of course, I'm a dyed in the wool bluegrasser. Although I like a lot of other kinds of music, I don't mm-hmm. tend to play other kinds of music very much. Mm-hmm. Except I did do the mandolin orchestra thing for a while, whatever. But when I saw you playing with them, I really felt like you were super tuned to that niche of being rhythm guitar. I think you were singing too and, Mm -hmm. and playing those breaks. I mean, it was just like, it was like custom made for you. And then I would see you in other situations where you're taking an entirely different role where, 
you're, you know, leading the band or, mm-hmm. you know, just playing a completely different style or something. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt there. It's just, I remember watching you thinking, you know, this dude, uh, almost any bluegrass band who wants to get anywhere ought to just get this guy because he's, well, he's man, just, I, that's very kind words. And I thank you for that. You know, I think of like Alison Krauss and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. who, who was playing with you in that, with the Shankmans. So that was myself on guitar, Dana Shankman on uh, banjo, Lauren Shankman on fiddle. And at that time, Dave Peterson yeah. uh, from 19 and 1946 was playing bass. Yep. And then on that one, uh, that must have been, I don't remember who was playing mandolin because that was so long ago, uh, but it probably you know, I'm not even sure. I don't even know who was playing mandolin, you know, because that was one of the early bands of the Shankmans. Now, later on, John Moore started playing mandolin uh, with the Shankmans and played quite a bit. Yeah. And then Jeff Midkiff, uh, the original mandolin player for Lonesome River Band, was the guy that played mostly with the Shankmans yeah. uh, when I was in the band. And let me mention this very quickly. Mm-hmm. You and Jeff have a video that is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. playing um, Sweet George Brown mm-hmm. that has 847,000 views. And yeah, it, is the, it is the fastest version of, of uh, that tune I've ever heard. And it was filmed <laughs> down there at uh, Jeff O'Wald's Watch and Learn place. I don't know if I was there. I don't think I was there when y'all did that. But Yeah, man. we filmed that live, and, uh, and that was uh, the first take that we did on it. And... Uh, and Jeff, you know, Jeff and I had been playing so much together, and he's one of my all-time favorite musicians. He's great, too. I looked him up one time just to see what else I could find on him, and he was playing mandolin with a symphony somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, he's, you know, it's uh, he's wrote some incredible music for symphony for the mandolin. He's great. He's, a, he's an incredible clarinet player, and he's an really? incredible fiddle player, too. Did not know So that. he's and he's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. You know, he's one of those guys that has no ego and he's just really friendly and nice to talk to. And me and him hit it off big time. And we were always roommates when we were tra- uh, traveling with the Shankmans. Yeah. And we just had so much fun and picked all the time. So when we cut that video you're talking about, we were playing a lot together. We were thinking as one person. You know, so uh, so we were really in tune to each other and really relaxed with each other's playing. It's insane so, if you read the comments that people have registered under that video. Most people think somehow the tape was sped up because you guys oh, are it, flying. It <laughs> you guys are running about 160 beats a minute or something. It's just nuts. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were feeling good that night. I think we had drank a lot of coffee too. That that probably didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well. um, before I, I'm going to go to my final round, I've got a I've got a little uh, three or four questions that, that okay. are my speed round at the end. But okay. before we do, let's let's or you tell people how they can follow what you're doing. I I think it's Curtis Jones Guitar Music dot com maybe. Might yeah, be that your... one works as well. But uh, you can also just the easiest way is Mountain Gypsy Music dot com. Okay, Mountain gypsymusic.com uh, and I was uh, you know prowling around there today and I saw that you guys are you guys have a pretty full schedule hopping around to those various mountain towns and some other places too Yeah we do we're actually uh, completely and... booked up uh, on the weekends uh, for this entire year so so uh, we're, we've been very very fortunate during this pandemic to to be able to keep working and you know, and playing as a duo uh, with my wife, Kim Jones, uh, who, by the way, is a great inspiration to me, just her passion for music. She's only been playing for two years on the upright bass, and her level has just, I mean, skyrocketed through the roof. And uh, and she's so much fun to be on stage with because she's so open to the sound of music and Wherever I go, and I go a lot of weird places when I play. You know, I might, <laughs> I might go to a completely different key and just say, "Let's see how it rides there." She goes with it, and she's got a great sense of humor with it. And so, uh, so yeah, she's doing excellent, and um, and we've been very fortunate to be able to play 
you know, Dan, keep playing and performing and keep teaching. And so, uh, so we, we thank God for that. We've been very fortunate. And this year is a very busy year for us. So we're playing a lot. And we're so grateful. So every moment on stage, I was going to go back to that for a second, is, is a blessing to me. And I can't really say that there's any bigger moments on any stage. I mean, I've had just as good a time playing for 10 people in a, in a little pub, you know. Yeah, uh, it's just feeling. Anytime you get to play music, you should feel blessed and you should feel honored. Uh, and I do. I feel honored every time I get to pick up an instrument and play. Well, that is some good advice for everybody who ever picked up an instrument. So uh, hit that website one more time, then I'm going to hit you with my lightning round. All right. Yep. It's mountaingypsymusic.com. All right. Everybody knows how to spell gypsy, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Or curtisjonesguitarmusic.com. All right. Yeah, that, so, that'll work. If you do a Google search for Curtis Jones Guitar, that website will come up. It, I think it's the top website that will come up anyway. Yeah, I've noticed if you just do Curtis Jones, you get this other guy. Uh-huh. Do you know who that is? I do not. The, I do not. Well, uh, he's a, but a blues player, I think. Yeah, something. It's completely different than your trip. Uh, yeah, from but, the 40s. I think he was from the 40s and 50s. Something, some quite different. But put in Curse Jones guitar will definitely pull you up. You'll Absolutely. Be the first thing. And in fact, to the listeners, that the videos that will pop up. Now, I'm probably using DuckDuckGo, not Google. But if you then hit videos, you'll see that um, with Curtis and Jeff playing that insane version of <laughs> Sweet George Brown. I remember playing that tune with you. you. Thankfully, you didn't play it that fast. I've played it <laughs> live with you on stage. And, you know, the bass is hitting one note for, for every four that you're hitting. And and I was still hanging off for dear life, you know? <laughs> yeah, that one's fun to fun to let loose and, and get at. Oh, it's fun, too. And I, I love you know, playing in that key and stuff too. Okay. Yeah. So here's your final round. Um, okay. Question one, what is your favorite meal? If you could just sit down and somebody serves you the meal of your dreams, what would, what would you be eating? Uh, you know, it's changed over the years. Uh, it, it would have to be broccoli, believe it or not. Really? I mean, I, I love broccoli. Uh, it, it would right now. It would have to be that. Now, do you want cheese on it? A little side, uh, side yeah, cheese or? and butter. You know, cheese and butter. That'll that would do it. Man, you're a simple man. I try to keep it simple. You're showing your bluegrass roots there. Okay. <laughs> Question two: You live up there in the hills where there's mm -hmm. a lot of weird stuff goes on, and uh, I just have to ask: Have you ever seen Bigfoot? No, I have not. Do you? I did see a weird creature, some kind of weird animal up on top of Blood Mountain, but it definitely wasn't a Bigfoot thing, and it was on four legs. Well, it was probably a liger. Uh, yeah. A, a dogman. Dogman sometimes would go down it on It could be that, you know, but it, it was a very weird-looking creature. It was, <laughs> it was strange-looking. Oh, man. Well, Somebody told me that they thought it was probably a bear with the manes, you know, or something like that, but it, it was weird. Well, I've wondered if people who come around your place sometimes think they've seen Bigfoot. Well, if they see me uh, in the mornings, they probably would think that. <laughs> All right, here, here's my next one. Uh, um, pets. Do you have any pets? We do. Yeah, we have five cats and one dog. Five cats and a dog. See, I was hoping for, I have um, an ant farm. I, I keep pit vipers in the basement, and I have a small alligator in the tub. That's well, we've so been looking, speaking of Bigfoot, we've been looking. <laughs> if we could ever find one, that would be my pet. You know, I'd love to have a Sasquatch. Just set some traps around. You'll, <laughs> maybe you'll get one one day because you know oh, they're absolutely. up there. You know oh, they're up absolutely. there. Absolutely, yeah. All right, next question. If you had a time machine mm -hmm. and total control of the universe, uh -huh. where would you go in order to be able to spend a month on the road playing with any musician in history? Without a doubt, no questions, Django Reinhardt. You know, I would go back and I would uh, play with, uh, I would be there with Django Reinhardt. And even if I didn't get to play, 
if I could watch him play and spend a month with Django Reinhardt, that would be that would be where my time machine would take me. That is that is cool. All right, this is my final question. Uh huh. This is for all the all the all the points, um, and this may be difficult. Um, if for some reason lightning struck something something changed where you could not play music what would you then do what 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 what's the other thing you might do creatively well, as far, yeah it's really uh the only thing painting uh, you know cuz i do paint uh ah. so i would paint and listen to music pretty much 24 hours a day well what if what if the beethoven thing happened to you and you couldn't even hear the music just keep well, painting. Yeah. yeah, just keep painting, I guess. And uh, you know, if you can't hear the music, that's uh yeah, that would be that would be tough, you know. So uh yeah. well you're yeah, the so you're the painting, kind of, you know, visual art. Yeah. I'd like to see some of your paintings. Yeah, um, I'll send you some. Yeah, do that. Shoot me some uh JPEGs or something I to will. my uh send them to my email, Brad at Bradleylayer.com because I still carry a flip phone. And uh, it works great for doing these interviews, but the pictures are about the size of a like a postage stamp from 1964 or something. <laughs> so I wouldn't get the full, you know, gist of it. But uh, uh, yeah, I'll send them to your email. Well, I have the feeling since you, you know, you mentioned painting and stuff, and and I brought up Beethoven going deaf, and um, but I I have the feeling that you'd still hear plenty of music even if you your ears didn't function. I just, I know that about you. Yeah. I feel that Beethoven did, you know, I know, uh, he, I know had he could hear the frequencies he just had. by laying his hand on a piano. He could tell you the notes you were playing. But I think and, uh, mostly it was like what you said earlier. I think mostly he, he hears it in his own mind. I mean, to be able to sit down and score an orchestra with pencil and paper, you have to be hearing it in your mind. Oh yeah. And I think you absolutely have, have that gift. Anyway. Yeah, and for him to write, you know, the seventh through ninth symphony completely deaf is is just a, it, it's proof that God gave him the talent, you know, because yeah. there's there's no other explanation, yeah, you know, because that music is so detailed. Counterpoints, I mean, for me, uh, in a lot of ways, that music has a lot of jazz elements. Uh, certainly not the improv part of jazz, but uh, but just the counterpoints and. It's just quite, it's just incredible to think somebody could compose that music death. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. My son Jackson is really into the piano and, mm -hmm. and composition and things like that. And he was playing this piece the other day, and, I, and I, I'll probably get the composer wrong. And I, it might have been Beethoven. Um, but he, he's just playing this thing, and I was like, that sounds like jazz. He's uh -huh. like, well, in the first movement, he did. Uh, he started using uh, like major sevenths and stuff. And like, mm -hmm. you know, like, this guy's like three hundred years ahead of everybody, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was probably Beethoven because he's. I think he it was did a lot of that stuff that that I know had to influence jazz. You know, it had to. So right. When right. you hear it, it's like, man, that's that sounds like jazz. It's amazing. You've been a, a very kind to uh, carve out. I know you got a gig tonight, and to carve out your time, I appreciate this so much, Curtis. It's so good to talk to you again. I hope that next time we're talking, we have instruments in our hands, and it's down here at my barn, and we're, we'll just throw down a little picking or something. Love to do it, man, and thank you again for having me on the show, and, and thanks to everybody that's going to listen, and uh, hope everybody does great and uh, has a has a very healthy year. and. And thank you again, Brad. It's just really nice of you to have me on your show. Happy to be of assistance, and uh, thank you, Curtis. Thank you, buddy. Okay. I'll talk to you later, buddy. Take care, my friend. Okay. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. And I know someday, babe, you'll be sorry for what you've done. When you quit your evil ways, then back to me you'll run. So that music you're hearing is off of one of Curtis's CDs. This is an album that he did in 1998 uh, called Blue As I. And it's got a bunch of people on there. 
uh, Missy Rains, uh, uh, Tim Stafford. Just look it up, see if you can find the CD. It's called Blue As I by Curtis Jones. And uh, Curtis has come a long way since those days too, but he was, he was really doing it even back in 98. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Curtis. I know that I did. And also want to thank the patrons. You remember those folks over there at patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. Those, those kind folks who pay for all this so you can listen for free. Well, maybe you want to join them. You could just go over there for a dollar a month, and, you know, do it for a month and cancel it. <laughs> Whatever. I'm almost, you know, to the point of I'm just going to stop asking. But I do appreciate those of you who do it. And also, a little plug for my website, go to bradleylaird.com, a site just completely cram-packed with free information on how to play various bluegrass things, and also where I pedal my books, ebooks, courses, and videos, and I know you're going to love them, especially that mandolin treasure chest and the uh, complete banjo learning system and the complete upright bass instruction system and course and all that I'm telling you I poured my heart into this stuff and I hope that you will take advantage of it so anyway thanks for listening and thanks again to you Curtis if you're listening to this uh, for coming on the show appreciate all you listeners and talk to you in the next episode I won't take